This is episode 48 of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology 2023, Frontiers of Human Immunology, with Drs. Mark Davis, Shruti Nayak, and Daniel Musida. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life sciences research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, please rate us and leave us a review. We always are looking forward to your feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have doctors Mark Davis, Shruti Nayak, and Daniel Musida from the American Association of Immunologists on the podcast to talk about the upcoming annual meeting, Immunology 2023. So Immunology 2023 is the world's leading annual all immunology meeting, and this year it's in Washington, D.C. Register by March 31st. To take advantage of the special discounted rate or visit www.immunology2023.org for more information. All right. So how is settling into another postdoc? But you don't have to move, right? So that's good. <laughs> I literally moved to the institute right across the street. It was it was, it was a daunting experience, you know. It's uh, now I have to leave my bike slightly more down the road than before. But it's a whole new email address. It's new pipettes. Do you have you found your new favorite pipette yet? Not, not yet, because it's a little bit different. So we don't get your our own pipettes in my new lab. It's all like communal lab space. We all share, you know, you share the love, share the pipettes. You, you told me you were writing grants now. Well, you gotta get the money, otherwise, uh, no one's gonna pay me to keep doing what I'm doing. So I gotta ask. So at least with yeah. NIH grants, you get a score. Mm-hmm. Now the worst scores are called, you know, you get a you you get good or fair, depending on mm-hmm. it. Like that's the worst. Then it goes to great, excellent, and then outstanding. There's never bad. They're just, we didn't talk about you. <laughs> or it's good, you know, good, great, excellent, outstanding. Do you guys have something similar or like the worst is a positive adjective? And it just, they have to get more and more creative with, with the positive adjectives because they can't just say it was bad. I have to say, um, there's so many different funding mechanisms in Europe. I seem that it looks like from afar, like the U.S. is so homogenous in that sense, like everybody's looking at the NHA grants. And then when that when the results come out, my Twitter feed is just filled with people talking about this one NH uh, grant, NIH grant. So uh, in my case, uh, we're having which is they get accepted or not. Uh, I am I don't know exactly how in this particular for this particular program how uh, we get graded. Um, so, but, but I know for the ERC grants, for other like European grants, there is some like, like uh, ratings and then you are in the what, whatever percentile, uh, but I don't know the details. I haven't written that many grants so far to, to tell. So we'll let you know, a couple of years, let you know. I'm just curious because there's all these cultural quirks and that's one of the weird ones in NIH is like the worst you can do is good, but good isn't good enough. Only outstanding is good enough. Well, anyway, speaking of translating segue i got a good paper from you from science translational medicine oh wow segue of the week you're just you're just on fire outdoing yourself jason right i'm trying so the paper is irac or irak4 inhibition dampens pathogenic processes driving inflammatory skin conditions first author is stephanie lavazias and last author is reginald bryce it is, a, as I said, science translational medicine, and it came out the 15th of February. So this is a paper, it's actually about a small molecule 
There is sponsorship from pharma. I think some of the people who developed this in the lab at this institute then spun off a company, which makes sense based on what they did. Um, long and short is, you know, there's a couple ways to go inflammatory signaling for drugs. You can block the cytokines high up, or you can block the receptors down below. Not the cytokines or receptors at the top, but the intracellular transducers of signaling. So like the, the, the main kinases. So Jack kinase is one that's been done already, right? There's drugs out there to block Jack kinase. This is IRAC4. The reason going after the kinases can be compelling is that sometimes if you block one cytokine, another cytokine just take care of activating the cell in a way you don't get anywhere. And so in some diseases, blocking a cytokine really helps, but in other diseases it doesn't. Or in sometimes blocking a cytokine helps in some diseases, but it also has these very deleterious effects elsewhere. So what they looked at is making a small molecule inhibitor to IRAC4. But what they wanted to do was really be good about you know, the pharmacology of it as best they could and compare it to other similar kinases and make sure they didn't have too much crossover, right? So make sure that it's pretty specific for this one and not also affecting other ones. And they're able to get anywhere between 10 and 100-fold specificity and even with binding 10 to 100-fold more potency with IRAC4 than other things. So they, they did the standard kinase in vitro screen got a hit and then did medicinal chemistry on the hit with multiple iterations to try to come up with this molecule that is extra specific for IRAC4. And that's the first part of this paper. And it's pretty convincing. They have a pretty good mo molecule here with nanomolar specificity, nanomolar binding and pretty strong potency. That's about one to two orders of magnitude, but typically two orders of magnitude better versus it's concerned off targets. So as far as the first pass goes, that's pretty good. I liked it. It was pretty nice. The next thing they did is then they did the work of really ferreting out the signaling with skin diseases. So psoriasis, atopic dermatitis. And they did this pretty compellingly and they demonstrated. And then the other thing, just real quick, IRAC4 signaling has known cytokine profiles. And so it only drives, it only is induced relative to some signaling. And then you have downstream you know, so some some molecules and then downstream activation as patterns. And some of those patterns are different based on cell type, but they're able to show then in vivo or in vitro with cell assays that, hey, if we go down a pathway with IRAC4 inhibition, the drug works. If you go after something else, the drug doesn't do anything, even if it's one of these related pathways that is, you know, a hundredfold less binding and they can show that it's not being affected. So they kind of do that small molecule work. Then they go and look at these immunological IMIDs, it's called immunological driven skin disorders. Um, and they demonstrate that in, you know, first in cell models, but then in skin biopsy models as well, where they take biopsy, either regular skin biopsies or skin grafts or 3D organoids of skin and induce a system with atopic dermatitis, or in the case of psoriasis, you can actually get punch biopsies from people with psoriasis, that the drug works. And they then kind of get down to the signaling level. And one of the thing about these intracellular receptor, these intracellular kinases, is even if you think they're they should operate universally, they don't. So, for instance, they show in this case that um, fibroblasts, 
they are not affected by this drug, nor is IRAC4 important for cytokine signaling in inflammation for these disease states, but the skin cells, it is important. And so they're able to demonstrate, hey, that's a difference, right? So we're not going to affect the fibroblast compartment with this drug. But they also show with the in vitro models, and then they do mouse models on like the ears and stuff of mice for atopic dermatitis or immune or um, that you can give them miquimod, which is an immune modulator that activates the immune system to give them like a psoriasis type thing that that it still functions to reduce the symptoms of those diseases. Right. Thickness of the ear, the histological outcomes, the cytokine signaling. So they do a pretty good job kind of showing, hey. This drug's pretty specific, which is always concerned. It doesn't affect every cell, right? It affects only a subset of cells where IRAC4 is important, and it still modulates disease in a positive manner. So it's a pretty good medicinal chemistry, but it's in translational science, right? Science translational medicine, because it gets all the way through mice studies showing disease-specific activation. And that's neat to see. And they show it works in T cells as well. So it, you know, it's a pretty good drug to start, you know, they'll have to do a little more preclinical talks, but it really just needs preclinical talks, then it can go into people. Nice. Uh, so this is, is IRAC4, a human IRAC4 also? Uh, like they, this, they, Yeah, they did, they did all the cell work and in vivo punch biopsies in humans, and this oh, also okay. then worked in the mouse. All right. So do you think this is kind of a good blueprint of how to develop such a drug and test it? It's pretty classical, honestly, in terms of what you do. It, it is the blueprint. It just worked in this case. Did they mention a, a clinical trial or some tests in humans upcoming in like full humans? No, but I think this is the paper that the that they the company would use to go get funding to do the pre mm -hmm. talks and support phase one, what we call phase one enabling studies. Yeah. So that's usually how it goes, right? Now, now that you're in biotech, you can give us an insight. This is very important for companies to to kind of prove. You publish that. Say, look, we have this solid data. Go give us money, venture capital, so that we can go do phase one enabling studies. You get your phase one, then they get more money, and so on and so forth. So this is all, you know, early early biotech, but all in the right direction. And which university is it that they're collaborating with them? Oh, so this came from a university. And I think mm -hmm. that those universities spun out because it's former employee. So it is. The Technical University of Munich, oh. but then former, you know, present address, Confo Therapeutics and Kalidus Therapeutics and Agom AB Therapeutics. So I'm not sure, but the last author is now at Agom AB Therapeutics. So mm. I'm thinking, you know, some people got jobs in pharma because that happens to people. And then some people, I think someone went to pharma with this drug. Because I have to okay. guess. That's just a guess though. All right. I wonder if this company is based in Europe or if they went to the U.S. to continue. That's also very often the case. Address is still in Belgium, Switzerland. The last company is in Belgium, so they stayed in Europe. Okay. All right. Nice. All right. So, uh, well, as we're talking about translation, why don't I uh, talk about my papers? This is actually quite a short list, more of a report than an article, but I just wanted to share it because... It uh, is in relation to a previous uh, one I, uh, paper I talked about some episodes ago, in which they used C19 cars to um, resolve like severe uh, systemic lupus. And 
because you know they at that point they 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 show that see that B cells uh, are part are very important for the for the whole uh, pathology of the disease, and so uh, the same group kind of started clearly started looking at other diseases that uh, have a strong B cell uh, compartment or B cell influence, and they I think they're just like just treating bunch of people with car with CD19 cars to see what what happens and uh, this is another one of the such such um experiments or such uh, trials that i want to share because i think it's really nice because i think these are diseases are very rare and they're quite devastating and it's really interesting to see how a therapy that originally was just meant to uh, for 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 leukemia patients can be broadly applied to autoimmune diseases so this paper is called C19 targeted CAR T cells in refractory antisynthetase syndrome. It was published in the Lancet on the 15th of February. First author Fabian Müller, and from the lab of Herschet at the University of Erlangen in Germany. Uh, so the same guys that published the the paper I mentioned in uh, episode 38, and basically they they look at a different at a different disease which is idiopathic uh, a type of idiopathic inflammatory myopathy in which uh, basically it's this kind of very rare group of diseases uh, that are immune mediated and primarily affect the skeletal muscle but also other organs uh, lungs skin joints and it's very very bizarre like what happens basically you have a immune response against uh TRNA, tRNA synthetases, so something so basic as a uh, uh, tRNA synthetase can be uh, targeted and can be a source of inflammation. Um, so people that have uh, these diseases, they of course imagine it affects uh, those um, particular those tissues that have a lot of translation, a lot of these synthetases present, and you end up having antibodies uh, against particular uh, tRNA synthetases. Uh, and one example is what is anti-JO1 antibodies that recognize um, histidine synthetase. And uh, there's others. You can also have uh, autoantibodies against tyrosine, uh, tRNA synthetase, alanine, glycine, a lot of the other ones. And basically, these patients have, um, it is known that B cells are related, of course, are making the antibodies, and they're, they're, they're but they're also involved in in, in activating the T cells and, and driving a lot of inflammation. Uh, there's there's a lot of, so there's people see presence of B cells and plasma blasts uh, adjacent to T cells, or there seem to be activating T cells in the affected muscles. And similarly to lupus, um, they sh it has been seen that B cell depleting therapy with antibodies such as rituximab, which is a CD20 antibody, that is a depleting antibody, uh, can be efficacious in a subset of patients, uh, which further suggests a very important role of autoreactive B cells. And so, what the, what the, basically, what this 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 article talks about a case study of a patient, uh, a forty-one-year-old man that has a refractory antisynthetase syndrome and has anti-JO1 antibodies, and um, and has a lot of the other uh, presentations of these disease, has increased so creatinine kinase concentration, which reflects muscle damage. So in that there's muscle damage, it has, of course, muscle mass loss. This person cannot, uh, has, is very weak, doesn't have, uh, most his muscles are inflammated. Um, and he had been treated with other more traditional 
uh, anti-inflammatory uh, drugs, uh, glucocorticoids, uh, tacrolimus, which is also an immune suppressive drug used for transplantation, um, rituximab, but although he initially responded to these treatments, he relapsed and it must be a horrible disease to go through. So out of, I guess, uh, as a, as a, as a, after discussing with the patient, they decided to treat this person with CAR T cells again, uh, against CD19. And so, and I think by this time, it, it shows how far we've gone when it comes to cell therapies. CAR T cells are fairly easy to manufacture. I mean, nothing's easy, but like they're very straightforward. Uh, you have a lot of uh, platforms that would allow you to generate these T cells in almost in-house. You, you could, if you, you need a very little, uh, if you have this 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 uh, automated machines, you can really make them in a very small clean room with with very simple input from operators, and you can make these CAR T cells from the patient in in this case thirteen days, and they're ready to go. So they treated this person with a million CAR T cells per kilogram, so I guess less than a hundred million cells, which is not a lot. Um, and thankfully, he this person did not have many side effects. You know, we know that. Treatment with with cell therapy can result in cytokine release syndrome, things like that. Is there is has been highly documented for uh, treatment of leukemia, but in this case, this person was also treated with anti IL six uh, receptor, uh, this tocilizumab antibody that really dampens the worst of the of the cytokine release syndrome, and the results were very good. So this person, um, right after, so. Uh, Right after a couple of weeks after infusion, completely reduced the levels of B cells. Those B cells were for a while, a while uh, undetectable. Uh, the uh, the person regained muscle strength by six months after the infusion. He was having already normal muscle strength again. The anti one antibodies disappeared. There was an overall improvement of his symptoms, uh, recovery of muscle. Um, and what is very interesting, similarly to what they see for the lupus patients, actually the B cells rebounded after around a hundred days. And they start to have normal titers of B cells again, but the disease doesn't come back. So it does seem that they kind of eliminate from the repertoire of these B cells, these autoreactive B cells don't, don't exist in the same way they did, uh, if at all, uh, before the treatment. And so they, the patient had to be treated at least for the short term with intravenous immunoglobulins to like kind of replace the, the missing B cells. But what I'm not sure is whether this treatment needs to be kept for long uh, because uh, I was looking into my notes from, from, the, from the lupus patients. It does seem like the B cells that are specific against like viral infections, things like that, they seem to come back. So it would probably might be the case that this person doesn't need to be on uh, immunoglobulin infusions for the rest of his life. So I just thought it was a, such another nice example of how CAR T cells can be used for so much more than just cancer treatment. I, I, I mean, I agree. I think then there's the clinical trial or, or how do you get to the point where you don't need a trial for every condition? Yeah. Given this is an ultra rare disease for one. Right. I mean, I would say that this, yeah, I guess it should, it's, it's unclear the long-term effects. So this person has, was just treated. So I guess, but I see no reason to not to treat this person, this person that have such a 
severe uh, disease um, manifestation with, with these therapies. Because, I mean, we have already had people with leukemia for 10 years that have CAR T cells for, for 10 years already, and they're fine. Um, so I think long-term safety doesn't seem to be, uh, doesn't seem to be worrisome. So why not just treat them? And nowadays CAR T cells, they're not, I mean, they're not that expensive to make. I mean, licensing is expensive, but I think with time, um, they will become more accessible and also they can be made at point of care. Um, I think there's a lot of, of benefits. I mean, this person was in a very difficult position before before the infusion. Well, I agree. I think it's just it's a matter of getting the regulators to align on how to use this therapy or enable its use. All right. Well, I have you know to, to go back in time instead of the future of medicine to the uh, the Neolithic era even of science. I have a paper for you. This one is in immunity. Archaic humans have contributed to large scale variations in modern human T cell receptor genes. Uh, first author is Martin Koren. Last author is Ganya B. Carlson Headstam. It came out February 15th. So they look at T cell receptor gene heterogeneity, looking at the VDJ variable regions with sequences they can get, um, including from new new studies and, and existing data sets. Those also look at gene expression, right? So they look at expression as well as the human, the genome itself. And they try to kind of understand population clustering of this and how much heterogeneity there is. And they actually find a couple interesting things. They actually find some TCR VDJs sets, some TCR combinations are genetically encoded. Like, so a ton of people have it and it's exactly the same sequence everywhere, which means it's not just a random recombination. And then they go look at the genome and it's there as is, right? So it's not just everyone gets recombined. There's some stuff that gets hardwired because there's multiple copies of all these genes, right? In our, in our genomes. So there is some germline inheritance of the T cell receptors that you will, will have that are pre-recombined for you. So that was fun to learn. Um, and the next thing they looked at is that variations involve coding changes and non-functional alleles. Like sometimes you get a stop codon and then some of these alleles are associated with various diseases then and this is and, and they spend a lot of time just talking about the paper and in the paper terming like here's these type of genes and the clustering and you can see how africa you know a group of you know humans migrated out of africa and then into europe and asia and then over to the u.s right into the north and south america and all this stuff and so you that means that there's been genetic drift but africa has less of that and so you can actually see how that clustering in the set, right, of the genetic drift. But then there's certain genes and allele, there are certain alleles that African people do not have that everyone else does to some level. And then they said, well, you know what happened when the humans left Africa is they encountered the Neanderthals and Denosivians, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah Dennis Denisovans. 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 And, and, and then, uh, you know, as hominids do, you breed with them. Typically after fighting with them. And we'll just sweep that part of things under the rug. Asian history. DNA, DNA was exchanged and encoded. Oh, my. And those genes, based on a reference Neanderthal sets, three sets and one Denosivian set that we have, that we've been able to recover over time because we've gotten this DNA. Guess what? That's where it is. <laughs> so there's, there's a subset of our T-cell receptors and then coding of them that come from Neanderthals, but only in non-African people who made some babies with Neanderthals and other archaic humans or human-ish hominids. Um, so that was really the main kicker of this article. That they also say, hey, what about monkeys? <laughs> All right, what about monkeys? And, uh, and non-human primates, we actually have some conserved regions with them too. So it's a short description. It's a long paper, but like fundamentally, guess what? Some of our T cell receptors come from Neanderthals. I mean, are you even surprised? I'm not. No. I think it's cool. You can see it in the genetic data though. Like there's this yeah. subset of alleles Africans do not have at all. Oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, it's from Neanderthals. I'm like, ah. That makes sense. How, how much? So what percentage Neanderthal are you? I don't know. I've never uh, sequenced myself. Oh, yeah. We discussed this. You're, you don't want to put yeah, your, the, the your data genetic privacy. data. Yeah, yeah. I understand. We don't have privacy laws in the U.S., Brenda. That's true. You are products. You citizens are products for the multinational companies that lobby your government in order to keep regulations lax so they can make profit without any kind of regulation. That's fine. I would rather be a reactant, but sadly, yes, I'm also a product. Chemistry. Yeah. All right. So, well, good to know our, our dear cousins leave, left us with some extended, uh, you know, TCR repertoire to protect us from all those microbes. So it can only be a good thing unless, and this is my segue, unless those TCRs are self-reactive. Oh, no. Oh my God. Sorry. I'm sorry, dear listeners. You're we're we're kind of being really nervous sometimes, but that's why you listen to us, I figure. Anyway, so uh with that segue, that being said, uh it might be that those beautiful TCR uh you know GCRJ sequences left behind by our lost cousins are actually part of a self-reactive repertoire that gives you a grief if 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 things go wrong. So paper. Uh, the paper I'm going to talk about is called The Endogenous Repertoire Harvest Self-Reactive CD4 T-cell Clones that Adapt at Follicular Help of T-cell-like Phenotype at Steady State. That was mindful. Um, from published Nature Immunology, it's a little bit older than usual, so from the 9th of February, but I really liked it, so I figured, you know, I'm just going to talk about it. It's still warm, I think. It's still hot off the press, kind of. First author is Victoria Lee and Daniel Rodriguez from the lab of Peter Savage at the University of Chicago. So basically, uh, what is the, 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 in the nutshell, this, this, in the, this paper, they look into understanding what are, what are self-reactive 
T-cell clones doing when they survive thymic selection. So we know that that happens. So the thymus is great, but every once in a while, we know that there are T-cell clones that are self-reactive that escape. And that's why it's so important to have your T-Rex taking care of the periphery uh, because they are the ones that are keeping those T-cells in check. Um, and that's why if you deplete T-Rex, the result is quite dramatic. So in this paper, they basically tried to find them. They, they used a model in which they looked at these cells. So they tried to find which are the cell clones or how are the cells that are being contained by the T-Rex in the periphery. And so for that, they took uh, advantage of a mouse model, which has a couple of cool characteristics. Um, basically, they um, took mice, which are uh, in which the T-Rex express a diphtheria toxin receptor, so this um, DTR mice, or and they uh, subjected a, a group of mice to um, chronic T-Rex depletion, so to say. So they removed the T-Rex, and they kind of saw in adult mice what, what happened. And they they looked into, um, so not, not for too long, because for too long, probably I think the mice wouldn't survive very well. But for a couple of weeks, they, they removed the T-Reg pressure and they looked into uh, non-lymphoid organs uh, for, for activated T-cells that are infiltrating organs. And then they um, took a bunch of organs, including the prostate, uh, the um, salivary glands, uh, pancreas, and they ended up kind of selling for the prostate because probably was the one tissue they could get the most cells from. It's really hard getting T cells from tissues. So I think for a matter of practicity and also because they have some kind of the most interesting results came from the prostate, we're going to focus on the cells that they found in the prostate. One other thing about this mouse is that not only are they have this diphtheria toxin receptor on the on the T-Rex, but they also mice that have a very uh, particular T-cell repertoire. They have a fixed TCR beta chain. So the, the diversity of beta chains doesn't exist. It's only one uh, fixed beta chain. Therefore, uh, this allows you to bulk sequence a group of cells and you can know which the TCRs are because if you only uh, if you only sequence the alpha chains, you always know that the beta chain is always the same. So that limits. Otherwise, it's very hard to find like the 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 pairs, like the alpha and the beta, if you do bulk RNA sequencing. So they do this. They look in the prostate. What are the cells that are there? And they actually uh, they have I think it's five different mice, and then they isolate all these cells, and they end up uh, sequencing over 17,000 different TCR alpha clonotypes. So even though there's no TCR beta, they still have 17,000 of the alpha recombinations. And from this, interestingly, I mean, not surprisingly, even though they are congenic mice, they're all the same, they find over 260 TCRs that are detected recurrently across the five mice. So these you know, you have the same the same genetic composition, basically the same animal five times, and there's some of these TCRs that, that are just repeated. So they're clearly uh, 
generated and selected and escape and and, and escape thymic uh, selection. Um, so when they take from this two hundred and something uh, clonotypes, they they focus on the twenty most prevalent, and they um, they look at what happens if you take these twenty most prevalent TCRs and you put them you start over again. And you make mice that only that express specifically cells with those with those TCRs in the context of a bone marrow chimera. So you have mice that regular mice that have their, their regular uh, repertoire, and on top of that, you you make you add these cells uh, through bone marrow chimera. So these cells also are generated. You can pick them up because you have a congenic marker because they want to see if we get cells that have this TCR. Is this TCR going to direct them back to the prostate again? Because this TCR is self-reactive and is kind of leading these cells to the prostate. And in fact, this is kind of what they see. Um, so they, on the first hand, so let me just get one step back. So these cells are activated when they, so they, they find these, these chronotypes when they remove TC, Treg uh, inhibition and they find this, these cells that are activated and they're like kind of migrating and they're highly present in the prostate. Then they express them in, a, in mice that are, they have T-Rex and they look for them in lymphoid organs and uh, just to see what's, what, what would happen to, where are these chronotypes normally? Where are these T-cells doing if the T-Rex are around? And interestingly enough, they find that from the 20 TCRs they try, different TCRs behave differently uh, in in a, in a steady state situation, and the most interesting group is four of them. They are actually already activated. They show they're proliferating. They express CD sixty nine. They and most interestingly, if you co culture them with splenocytes from germ free mice, even if they're from germ free mice, they get activated when presented with self antigen, basically. If you get splenocytes from these mice, these are clean mice, and if you if you put the cells and you put some IL two to kind of activate the cells a little bit, you see that these cells are actually recognizing antigen being presented in this steady state splenocyte, which really suggests that they are self reactive, and they also even have. So as I mentioned, they even have uh, splenocytes from germ free mice, which would further support that it's not some commercial, you know, micro microbiota antigens, it's really self-antigen because that's really all there is in those mice. So this, these cells, when they look at them closer, what is interesting is that in the steady state, these cells express many markers that are common to the follicular helper cells. They express PD-1, BCL-6, CXCR5, ICOS, IL-21, and they express less CCR7 that is associated with more kind of less active, more naive-like or memory-like phenotypes. And they don't have others. So they look at other lineage markers and they don't seem to really associate them with any of the other lineage markers. Um, so then if you continue following this, this guy, uh, these cells, when upon T-reg ablation, you see that these cells, these cells uh, enrich, are enriched again in prostate and they produce interferon gamma. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, they, so they, 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 they have this T follicular helper phenotype in the spleen, but they lose some of these markers when, when they, when they, uh, when they, um, infil uh, infiltrate the prostate under non-T-rec con conditions. 
Um, so basically, what's what's the take home message of this? There are you can find self uh, self reactive TCRs that escape uh, thymic uh, deletion, but they're kind of hidden if you still have the T Rex and they don't they don't drive any overt immune inflammation when tigers are around. If you remove the T-Rex, they kind of, that's how you find them in the first place. But in a steady state, they kind of are hidden in a way, in a phenotype that resembles follicular helper cells, but not really, but they're there. And even, so then, then they look at wild type mice and they try to find cells that have this follicular, -like, uh, follicular helper-like uh, phenotype and they see that this exists among other poly polyclonal populations, showing that probably those cells are also self-reactive TV conventional cells that are just adopting this T follicular helper-like phenotype in the absence of, of an immune challenge and uh, in, the, uh, in the presence of immune regulation. So it just goes to show that, of course, I mean, we, I think we already knew this, that this the prototype thymic development where, where you have, you know, either um, death by uh, death by overreactivity or conversion into T-Rex. Some of these guys actually get away with it and you can find them in the mouse and probably also in the human, I assume. So in other words, T-Rex are really important to holding uh, autoimmunity in check and there's a time bomb everywhere. So if you lose your T-Rex, that is no bueno. No bueno. Uh -uh. That's that's the right. That's the technical way of saying it. Yes, it's the high. It's the highest level of bad. Is no bueno. <laughs> oh, just, just 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 like the best is outstanding, the worst is no bueno. Yeah, that's what they should put in the NH grants. <laughs> if you think, instead of good, below good is no bueno. <laughs> it's not not discussed. It's just no bueno. That'd be, that'd be hilarious. Well, we're going to have some mucho bueno here in a minute when we speak to uh, Dr. Mark Davis, Dr. Shruti Nayak, and Dr. Daniel Musida. But uh, as a reminder, whether you're looking to attend an immunology conference this year or to expand your network, make the most out of your experience by downloading our collection of tools to help you guide your next event. Stem Cell Technologies downloadable checklists and guides include recommendations on how to get ready before attending conferences, tips for networking, best practices for your LinkedIn profile, and more. Download the conference toolkit at www.stemcell.com slash conference hyphen toolkit. So as we have mentioned before in the show, Immunology 2023 is coming up this May. And this is the annual meeting for the American Association of Immunologists, the AAI. And it's a five-day science extravaganza, which brings together thousands of immunologists from the United States, but also from all over the world. So it really is the place to be this year. And we are going to be there too, so very excited. And to cover uh, what to expect uh, about uh, this meeting and to look forward to the highlights of the of the conference, we have today three very distinguished guests, which are, uh, first of all, uh, Dr. Mark Davis, who is the Avery Family Professor of Immunology at Stanford University and also the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He is now a current AI president for the 2022-2023 term. And I am personally a fan. He's a pioneer in the field of T-cell biology, T-cell receptor, everything 
around that he's been involved with it. So I'm very excited to talk to him today. And his lab continues studying uh, the frontiers of human immunology. So maybe we're going to talk about uh, that a little bit later. We also have with us Shruti Naik, who is an assistant professor at New York University Grossman School of Medicine. She also was here with us last year talking about AI 2022. So very happy. She will be chairing and speaking at the major symposium C on mechanisms of innate immune memory and tissue adaptation on Saturday, March, uh, May 13th. So very excited about that. And her research, she, she spoke last time with us about her research on epithelial immunity. So if you're interested, check out uh, the special episode released on May 3rd, 2022. And last but not least, we have Daniel Musida. He is a uh, professor and head of the Laboratory of Mucosal and Immunology at the Rockefeller University and also Howard's huge medical institute. He will be chairing and speaking at the major symposium A on peripheral neuroimmune interactions on Friday, Friday May 12th. And his lab studies uh, intestinal immunology. And uh, also, I think he's going to be talking about uh, how it interacts with the nervous system. So very exciting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all for being here. And if you can't tell, Brenda's very, very, very excited to go to the conference. I think she's already been reading the program guide that's out as much as possible. Who isn't? The program is, I mean, it's, it's such a overwhelming amount of talks. I'm just like highlighting all of them. It's like, can I be at two places at the same time? This is going to be tough. But um, I guess maybe we can start by asking each of you, uh, if there's any highlight that you want to share with our audience, uh, those attending or maybe those thinking of attending, uh, what would be your the part of the conference you're more excited about? So maybe we can start with ladies first. Uh, Dr. Naik, what do you think? Yeah, I guess I have a shameless pitch here for the session that I'm um, co-chairing actually with Dr. Joe Sun, um, really about how our tissues experience inflammation, adapt to inflammatory encounters, and remember these encounters. And this year we chose to go pretty broadly and think about when in our when in our lifetimes these things occur, right? So early in life, we have some fantastic researchers who are studying how early imprinting changes our immune outcomes later in life. Um, and then we have leaders in the field like Dr. Rusan Metzatov who are who are really set the tone for this area of tissue adaptation, discussing fundamentals of how cells adapt to different pressures and and learn from this um, and may enable whole body adaptation. And the other thing I really want to highlight is um, my graduate mentor, Dr. Yasmin Melkade, is winning the Mentor of the Year Award. Um, and I think that is going to be a really monumental event and especially special for those of us who've trained with her. So I think to me, that's one of the big reasons to show up in DC this year. Very nice. Uh, what about you, uh, uh, Professor Davis? Uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh... Uh, it's it's pretty amazing uh, every year what what happens in immunology and and I think it's um, um, symptomatic of of biology uh, not being a linear uh, pursuit that uh, it's not ob obvious how how to get from A to B to C and you're constantly navigating looking for openings. Um, and so you don't really know from one decade or one year to the next where the breakthroughs will come uh, because you're just sort of hammering, you're hammering at the, 
the gates here uh, in in different ways and thousands of people trying different things. Uh, and then something happens, some some something uh, in immunology, something amazing happens in terms of a breakthrough and and suddenly and everyone says, oh, wow, okay, that's that must be what we should do. And and then you start to, you know, um, see a kind of a, a, a mass movement. And sometimes it's faddish and you have to watch out for that. But other times it, it represents a fundamental uh, changes and issues. And and I've been on this one uh, thing for some years now. And, and the big the main perk of being a president um, for the one year that you get to do this is that you you get to do your own symposium on whatever you you feel you want to hear about um, or that you feel the field should hear about. And um, for years now, I've, I've felt that uh, people were ignoring humans. Um, and um, what are the advantages of working on humans and human immunity? Um, and the, the, of the top 10 reasons, the first is they come to hospitals. Uh, they have thousands of diseases. Uh, and then the last one is um, they pay for your research. Um, and uh, and so we, we need to keep these things in mind uh, so that we just don't get so in love with um, inbred mice that um, we can't think of anything else that, that needs to be done. And uh, and so in, in the symposium I've set up, it's all uh, for leaders in uh, the efforts to understand human immune responses. Um, and that includes mice, because of a lot of things you can do in mice you can't do in humans. But just to make the effort to um, get some kind of real data uh, and to, to address real questions in human disease, um, in vaccine work. I mean, uh, you may not realize with the success of the COVID vaccines, how miserable a field vaccinology has been. Uh, there are just many failures. It, it was, wasn't fashionable for many years in academics. So companies um, have done largely abysmal job at um, developing and understanding uh, uh, vaccines. I mean, they just repeatedly come out with the same sort of retread of a vaccine and doesn't work. And then they start over again, but, and they don't really understand why it didn't work in the first place. So anyway, there's, there's uh, so anyway, so uh, some real leaders, uh, Paul, uh, Pamela Bjorkman and Bali Palendrum are, have been uh, some of the leaders in, in thinking about vaccines in a much more uh, science way and, and uh, uh, coming from different aspects have been really good. And then, uh, some other uh, some other folks like uh, Kiko uh, Iwasaki has been a leader at Yale in doing uh, clinical studies of of um, COVID and also other infectious disease in in actual humans. Also doing mouse studies to try to nail down some some things that are happening there. But 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 just getting out into humans is a is a it's not an easy thing. You've got to co-opt, you've got to have clinicians uh, involved, you've got to have computational people. Uh, it's It takes a village to, to do a, a human human project, really. And uh, uh, the other, uh, uh, the fourth speaker is uh, Peter Brodin at uh, both uh, the Karolinska and um, 
uh, Imperial College of London. He, he's been incredibly innovative um, in uh, doing human studies and, and finding cohorts and developing cohorts and, and taking advantage of um, the latest technology to understand those. So anyway, I think it's going to be a great lineup. It's going to, I think, also help, you know, too often um, society meetings are about the past. It's about the glories of, of what we used to do and 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 all the people that are doing this and that, that, but they're not enough. I always thought there's not enough about the future of the field and, and what, what the younger people should be um, thinking about. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And maybe we can get back to that uh, later in the conversation, what's in for the trainees and uh, young people that attend. But before that, I would like to hear from uh, Dr. Musida what he thinks is the highlight of the season. Thank you, Brenda. And thanks, everyone, for having this conversation. I I will, I will start with an unconventional side, which is uh, I, I like the fact that it's in DC so people can actually take trains, at least people around DC, the major centers in Boston, uh, New York, um, you know, Washington itself and around. So I think it's an opportunity for people to go by train to the AI. Uh, I actually am in favor of reducing the amount of people flying to these major conferences and doing DC helps a lot. Uh, on that enterprise, I know that not everyone can go by train, and I, I think having more options that are virtual uh, is also. But anyway, that was a major reason why I I decided to go. I I think also it's been a while we don't have full a conference in person after the pandemic. Uh, you know, we didn't have, so it's kind of exciting to see everyone. Um, and. So that I think the highlight is to see so many you know, colleagues and friends that will be uh, there. Um, and in terms of scientific content, I, I wanna make a, you know, uh, another side of the coin. Uh, Mark always highlights the human immunology and I think uh, it's very important. His push, he's, you know, he's been pushing for this for many years and I think he's, he was able to convince many people to do human immunology research. And I think that's important. Uh, there's no doubt that's important. But uh, I would highlight the uh, kind of side with uh, uh, Shruti about the uh, aspect of tissue immune cell interactions, which are very difficult to study in humans. I was trying to convince someone to donate uh, their intestine for me to look at the neurons inside the intestine. It was very difficult. I think they actually, they, even in that aspect, human immunology is improving. Uh, I actually, I'm trying to, I, I agree with Mark on the relevance. I, I sometimes disagree when he makes like a kind of, a, he spits in the plate he ate before on the mouse immunology. I mean, he's, a, he's you know, he's a mouse immunologist and he did his initial major findings in mice. I saw your conference of the day that uh, you gave him the whole thing in humans. The last experiment mechanistic was done in mice. Uh, Look, there's space for both. I just think it would be very difficult if everyone starts doing only human immunology. Uh, but I do, I do agree on the relevance of human immunology. But talking about that, the, I, I also will do a pitch on, on, on my uh, major symposium that I'm organized with uh, Esther Florschein. She's a former postdoc in Jerusalem Medzitov Lab, so another Jerusalem uh, 
trainee that is there, uh, I, I, you know, adding to the to his own presence as well. Uh, we did uh, something that was very interesting. We did a mix uh, of uh, uh, gender. Was a, is a very gender balanced our our symposium. Our major symposium is uh, three women, three men. It's mixed junior and senior. So we have one, uh, two, three uh, junior, three senior, and we have minorities as well. So uh, I, I, and it's about near immune interactions. Uh, it's going to be myself, Esther Flurschheim, who is a junior faculty now at uh, Arizona State, uh, Carol Sok Sokol, uh, who is still junior, but you know, transitioning to mid career. Uh, she's also a former uh, Ruslan training. Katarina Dulak. So we're very happy to get, to get her as the first AI that she's going to be yeah, giving a talk. And also, I'm, I'm inviting another uh, person from outside the field, Ivanja Araujo, is a neuroscientist from Mount Sinai who studies um, neurocontrol of gut homeostasis. So it's it's more on the neuro side of neuroimmune interactions. And another junior uh, faculty, Felipe Almeida, who is in WashU. So it's very diverse uh, gender, uh, minorities junior and senior, and the topic is a topic that so far it's uh, much easier to study in, in mice, but the transition to humans will happen, Mark. Don't worry about that. All right. So this actually is going to be my first AAI because I usually end up going to uh, digestive disease conferences or FASEBs where I focus on mucosal immunology there. So this is my first immunology conference itself. Um, I was wondering if you could give me kind of a sense of the structure. And yes, by the way, uh, Daniel, I am taking the train being from Philly over there. So I'm, I'm excited not to have to get on a plane. But I was wondering if you guys could go over. So for all conferences have a different structure. And so you guys are dividing the symposia for people who, especially trainees, haven't been one before. Very briefly, can one of you kind of explain how is it structured as a conference? You know, we're, we're trying to get uh, involvement by uh, at all levels. Uh, and so we have major symposia, uh, but uh, we have workshops, we have uh, uh, symposia sponsored by other groups um, uh, that 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 uh, represent other societies that that want to be part of this, uh, and and we have massive poster sessions. So basically, uh, trainees uh, that's a, a major route for trainees is that they uh, can submit an abstract for a poster, uh, and they can give a poster, uh, but some of them uh, are selected to give talks in the workshops if if the work if, if people decide that that's uh something people want to hear so uh and there are many workshops in in all different areas so the idea is to is definitely to hear from as many people as possible and and to hear the most exciting work whether it's from a poster or whether it's in a major symposium you know like mark you were saying you want the most exciting science. And sometimes that's really when people are at the precipice of getting on the job market, right? They're the ones who are leading the way. And in fact, we should be giving these people a platform in our community and the visibility. So we have someone also from Yasmin's lab, Ailing Lim, who just started her lab, right? This is the person who has the coolest new ideas, who needs to recruit postdocs, who's gonna be hitting the road running. And I think just shifting that a little bit, that rule a little bit, could be so impactful in propelling our community. So thank you for doing that. I guess that that falls in the category of things that are 
helping trainees and and and, and young uh, uh, youngish investigators uh, have their spotlight. I think that's very important, and it would be part kind of of what is necessary to train the next generation of immunologists. Um, are there any platforms or programs that are specifically aimed at uh, young or, or upcoming researchers that people should be aware of or that you're particularly uh, maybe uh, proud of? Yeah, there's there's um, things not necessarily associated with the national with the annual meeting, but uh, AAI has a lot of programs to uh, provide travel grants to not just our big meeting, but the International Congress, which also there's a going to be a International Congress of Immunology in Cape Town uh, in November. Um, and um, so we provide travel grants for for uh, people that apply. Um, we uh, have training. We, if people want to learn computational methods, we have a program for that. If people want to be involved in uh, public policy, we have another program. They're intern basically on Capitol Hill. Um, uh, so, so it's quite a lot of um, things we do sort of year round uh, to help uh, uh, people get going in 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 the business. One I would like to highlight specifically for this AI meeting is this careers roundtable um, that's I think on that Saturday. Um, and it's really fantastic because it's a it's a venue where folks are sitting at small roundtables and there's one or two PIs that are leading the discussion. And there's all sorts of trajectories like postdoc to PI, biotech and industry, building networks, work-life balance, grant writing. So all these different thematics. And um, you know, I'm looking at the list of faculty that have signed up and it's really like leaders in the field, right? Like Gwen Randolph, Greg Sonnenberg. Um, Carla Rothman, the list just goes on. So you have this opportunity to interact and get firsthand feedback from people who are really executing well at the highest level. Um, and also build your network. I mean, this is where trainees really meet future colleagues, uh, future mm. collaborators. So I think this is something that every trainee that's out there should consider. Yeah, there are all, all these complex transitions uh, from from postdoc to lab leader, for example, is huge. I do agree that the transition can be very daunting. I mean, I am not there yet, but I do hear how difficult it is to uh, make the both the mindset change, the logistics, and also the the getting the right people to to work in your team. And I guess uh, that having access to others that did it before you and are still remember how it was at a place like a conference, uh, especially if you have a special session where people are prepared to tell you what you need to hear, it's very, can be very valuable. So I think what Shruti said is, it's good to highlight that there are this uh, type of events aimed at people that are thinking about transitions and how to do them right. Yeah, no, that's, it's very good to, to point out. Uh, I think the other, the other good thing with these meetings is the and at a round table like that or or in other uh contexts uh is actually meeting um people you've only ever read about and that you might imagine are 10 feet tall and you know godlike uh eminences and then then you I remember the first time I met a, a prominent scientist as a as a student and 
And I said, hey, he's just a guy. You know, it's just he's <laughs> a hardworking, uh, thoughtful person, not not 10 feet tall. Not, you know, that there's this is this is possible for ordinary mortals. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. So Daniel or Shruti, um, one of the other things we've kind of talked about trainees, the conference, and what they can gain out of it, networking, which seems to be the answer that we always give at all these whenever something comes up like this. But also you know, conferences are a great time, as we talked about, to see the most cutting edge stuff. We've had kind of had some big renaissances in immunology recently. We've had, you know, immunotherapy. We've had cellular therapy. We've had mRNA vaccines. Do you guys have anything that you think of as your leading symposium that's kind of that next step you're starting to, excited to start seeing that's like, you know, not quite in people yet, where maybe Mark wants it to be, but it's getting there or it's early trials. Is there is there some next thing you're hoping that you're going to be able to see at the conference or excited to go and learn about? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually pitching Daniel's session because I think this is like such and, you know, I don't want to say merging because it's emerged and it's erupted and it's like um, it's almost like a tsunami of new, exciting discoveries. But the neuroimmune interface is absolutely, um, I think, one of those cutting edge areas. And I think more and more we're realizing that we're not going to be able to teach immunology without understanding neuroscience, thanks to folks like Daniel. Um, and, and really thinking about modulating immune mechanisms via the nervous system could be an exciting new area that's coming up. And that kind of also ties together with the theme that, that, that our major symposium focuses on, which is this interaction between immune cells and non-immune cells in the tissue and how those interactions occur how they can be targeted because uh, sort of blanket dampening of immunity isn't good either. Uh, we need those things for the kinds of stuff that Mark mentioned, vaccines, anti-immunity. Uh, anti, um, so under having a more nuanced understanding of the conversations that are occurring between immune cells and non-immune cells and targeting those, um, I think is the sort of next generation therapy. Of course, Neuroimmune is leading the way in that, I think. But you know, I'll let Daniel comment on it. No, no, I I agree. I would include, um, in addition to neuroimmune, uh, everything else that is tissue immune cell, including what uh, you know, returning the favor, including what she studies, uh, for example, interaction between immune cells in the stem cell niche of different tissues, not only the skin, as Shuri has done, but uh, additional tissues, but I, in addition to this uh, tissue immune cell interactions, I, I, the other thing I would add is actually that includes actually what Mark uh, has been doing. But, uh, and I think this has been a recent wave of changes is on TCR. Uh, BCR maybe uh, I think it started earlier, but in terms of TCR specificity uh, recognition patterns. So I think it, the field has been stuck for a long time, including mice and humans. And the advances uh, that we had in the past years in terms of tools, both for looking at the T-cell side repertoire, single cell analysis, TCR, uh, et cetera, but also on the recognition side, uh, a variety of tools, both, both for CD4 and CD8 cells, uh, that will allow, I think, speed up this process that takes normally 10 years until you have this cell, until you find exactly what is recognizing, even more difficult in humans. Uh, this is kind of, the, as a T-cell biologist, is something that I was 
I've been looking for uh, in terms of changes. And I think uh, it's possible that already this AI, we see result of these improvements in the, in the techniques to study that. Uh, and I think this is very important for, it's where the field is sort of stuck for a long time. And uh, I'm hoping to see uh, some big changes in that, uh, in that area. I would just add to that uh, partly um, the whole thing of of cell cell interactions and starting with a question of are are we tired of single cell analysis yet uh, and and what comes after that well um, cell cells interactions we 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 know there's a lot of that happening in the immune system um, with both immune cells and as Daniel as is mentioning that there are other cells in the picture as well that are doing things you don't understand. So, so a couple of years ago, I saw an inspirational talk by Ido Amin in, in uh, at the Weizmann, and um, he was developing um, uh, facts-based methods to look at cell couples. And normally, these are cells that you throw away in a, a facts analysis because they're just garbage; they're stuck together. But he was actually seeing cells that had meaningful interactions. Uh, and it's something a, a graduate student of mine has picked up on um, actually to look for cells making synapses. And, and that's working well. And uh, so I think that it's going to be because then you, you if you isolate these cell couples that are forming synapses, you can then do single cell analysis on them and see what what's happening at the gene level uh, with the uh, current technologies. So so there's hope there that we're, we could start to pick apart the sort of cellular interactome of, of the immune system, which would be very cool. I will add to this uh, a pitch, two pitches. One is for mouse immunologists, the amazing uh, people advancing the field. On that note, I will add the lipstick approach, which was developed upstairs by my neighbor, Gabriel Victoria, who is doing exactly what Mark is suggesting lipstick allows you to uh, label cells that had interact with each other. We have done some uh, recent uh, uh, expansions in the lipstick, uh, Gabriel, uh, in collaboration with my lab, and I think some of that I will present at the at, at the uh, at the AI, including what we call the universal lipstick, which allows uh, labeling any kind of interaction between uh, cells that have the partner uh, and the acceptor. I love the name. I, I, I should have mentioned that the lips <laughs> such a such yeah. a evocative catchy evocative name. Yeah. Finding a catchy name is half of the work. But if I may say as a Tison enthusiast myself, I do think also agree that understanding what teasers are looking at and what they're actually recognizing and being able to pick that up in tissue samples and all thanks to all these very sensitive assays that we have nowadays. I also think it's so important uh, because until now we kind of, yes, they're activating. We have some level of understanding, like some models in which we could look at antigen specificity, but now it would be so cool if we could always know exactly what each cell, each T cell is looking at. I think that would be so interesting. Because that effect, there's also a lot of spatial omics, right? I But I, I just, like, there's, uh, spatial transcriptomics and murfish and et cetera. But I just always go back to Mark's comment, which is how much omics are we going to do? And when does the functional work come into play? Um, and I think that is really 
where the field is going. It's no longer okay to just say, here's two different states, but what do they mean? What do these interactions mean? And what is the emergent uh, sort of avenue that's coming out of this, coming out of these interactions? What are the consequences for health and disease? And so that's absolutely an area that's exploding is the spatial omics, but a, a functional understanding of it. So I guess with this uh, look into the future of immunology, we can we could wrap up our conversation. Um, I we don't want to give too much away. We've got people to go and see it by themselves, and 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 uh, you know go have access to all the big researchers, all the people they've read the papers, but also uh, colleagues and uh, other people in their same uh, kind of stage, academic stage, and and just to see. To, to enjoy, uh, you know, spending time with our immunologist. And I assume there's also some help for those thinking of transitioning to industry. So people can also maybe, or other types of scientific uh, re uh, related uh, fields or, and, and, and jobs. So I think that's also very nice, a lot to look forward for everyone. And as, I, as we said, Jason and I could not be more excited to go and see you all in person. Jason, are you excited? I'm very excited. It's going to be part of my uh, two weeks of mega conferences. I'm very stoked. We're committed. We're committed to the cause. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Mark Davis, Shruti Naik, and Daniel Musida. We're looking forward to your talks and the symposia and to attending AAI. And for all the people listening, you know what to expect a little bit better now. So if you haven't signed up yet, just do it. Thank you for having us. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>